So open up in your Bibles. Go ahead and, and get to Mark chapter 14. I had the joy and the privilege of gathering with some men at Shepherds Conference this last week. We went out on Wednesday. We were there till Friday. A few of us guys here, about 11 of us, went out there and had a blast. Um, it's about 3,000 plus men in that room. And when they sing the old hymns, they're belting it out like a sound you've never heard. It's, it's a glorious thing. It's an amazing thing to be a part of. But as I'm sitting over here, standing over here, listening, you know what's more precious to me is the singing of our church. Man, it is a glorious, glorious sound that we come in unison and we're singing the glories of our Savior. I'm, I'm so blessed to be here. It is an amazing thing that we have here. I don't hope, I hope... We never take it for granted. It is a gift. Uh, we can enjoy it. It's a gift from God. So hopefully you're there, Mark. And, and I want to jump in a time machine here first. I want you to jump in your time machine. And we're going to go all the way back to 1446 B.C. B.C., before Christ. And I want you to think of yourself as a child you're an Israelite and at this point in your history you are in Egypt and it's all you've ever known you've only ever known being an Israelite in Egypt it's all your parents ever knew in fact your people have been in Egypt now for several hundred years and at first it was something that was tolerable and okay, even maybe pretty good situation for your people, but in the most recent years, things have been getting worse. Shadows of oppression have been spreading. Just some years back, you've heard that the government is killing male children who are being born. Uh, any Israelite boys are being slaughtered. Now you're starting to hear that things are getting worse. They're cracking down. Your father has come home from work with whip marks on his back a few times. You're concerned. What's going to happen next? The Pharaoh doesn't, the, the, the new Pharaoh doesn't seem to like you guys. And you're wondering what's happening, and you hear the next day that your father is now required to continue the work he's been doing, but this time they're going to remove some of the important parts of the manufacturing of bricks. They're going to take away the straw that they use. It's important of the process, part of the process. But he's got to keep doing it. And when he and others like him have failed, they're getting beat up for it because the Egyptians are, in fact, cracking down. You're a child and you're nervous and you're concerned and you with your father and your mother every evening you cry out to your God Yahweh. You're groaning, you're crying, you're weeping under this oppression that seems to be getting tighter and tighter. You're concerned about what might happen. And that's when you hear about a man called Moses. And you hear this man Moses is going to lead your people out of Egypt. It's all you've ever known. You've been taught all your life that there's a promised land. That God has given to your people. You've never set foot in it, but you know it's there. And you're hearing now that this man Moses is going to set you free. He's going to bring you out of bondage. He's going to deliver you out of Egypt. He's going to free you from your oppressors. 
hope starts to blossom in your heart and you're wondering maybe this will happen soon. All kinds of bizarre events are happening around you as Moses is preparing for a great deliverance. And finally, you're told, Father's told, that there's some very specific directions that you need to follow to get delivered. You've got to get a lamb. A pure lamb, an unblemished lamb. You're going to have to kill that thing. You're going to have to get some unleavened bread. That's going to be part of your meal. You've got to get some bitter herbs. That's going to be part of your meal. You're going to enjoy this meal, but you're going to eat it in haste. You're going to be in a hurry. You're going to take the blood of the lamb that you slaughtered. You're going to put it over the doorposts of your house. Father follows all the directions meticulously. Blood is over the doorpost. You eat the meal. You eat the unleavened bread. You have the bitter herbs. There's wine to go with it. And you're hearing that that very night, the angel of death is going to be passing over you. And that if there's no blood on the doorpost, that you're in danger of losing the firstborn in your home. You do it and all your Israelite friends do it in that night. It happens exactly as Moses said it would. The angel comes. There's an outcry in Egypt. There's wailing across the land as firstborns are killed by this angel. But your household is unscathed. And sure enough, as you after you eat that meal, you eat it in haste, you're told that it's time to get up and to get going. And you do so and you follow your father and your mother and you're headed out. Your heart is racing. You can't believe it's happening. And all kinds of miraculous events are taking place. You end up crossing the Red Sea as on dry land. You end up heading out and the Lord protects you from these pursuing Egyptians. What happens next is you get into that wilderness. Due to the sin of many of the people in your community, you end up wandering there for 40 years. Grow up there. Finally, the time comes. You're a grown-up now and you're going to head into that promised land you've always heard about. You've been told all your life, your parents, every year you've got to have that same meal. Every year on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, a Jewish month, the Jewish calendar, you've got to have that meal. You gotta take that lamb. You gotta get the unleavened bread. You gotta get the bitter herbs. You gotta get the cups of wine. And you gotta do this to remember what the Lord did. As a child, it was ingrained in your mind. You saw the miracles. You saw the power of God. You saw the faithfulness of God. You saw how He answered your prayers. And you then, now as a grown up, are taught, you must continue the meal. Always do the meal. It's a memorial meal, God says. Every time this part of this time of year comes around, you gather your, your, your family around the table, you do the lamb, you do the unleavened bread, you do the bitter herbs, and you say, this is what the Lord means. He is faithful. He has saved us. The blood of the lamb means that we did not face judgment. He set us free. Your children would not have experienced that deliverance themselves, but they would have watched you and they would have sat at the table with you and you would have started training your own kids. They would have grown up learning that they are to do that with their children. 
And that the children will grow up and they would know that part of what we do as a people is we remember the faithfulness of God, the deliverance of God, the salvation of God through a meal. We eat a meal together. And as we eat, we are remembering all that God did to save us. We're looking back to the great deliverance where God, through His miraculous work, set us free from bondage. And that would have happened for generation after generation after generation. And in our text this morning, we've got a group of men, Jewish men, celebrating that same meal. Then almost 1,500 years. And in our text, we're in chapter 14, verses 22 to 25. A handful of Jewish men who had grown up observing the Passover meal are going to share in the very last Passover. It will be a meal unlike anything they'd ever experienced. In one hand, it'll be something common to their experience because they grew up doing it. But on the other hand, Jesus will do something that had never been done and He will, in doing it, forever change the meal. It will move from being something for the Jews to being something for the church. Last week, if you're there looking in your copy of the Scriptures, we, we saw in verses 12 through 25, we looked at all of this and we saw the sovereignty of Christ as He arranges His own death, as He is sovereign over His own arrest and betrayal by Judas. He is the sovereign judge. He is also the sovereign Savior who takes up the meal and makes it a symbol of salvation. But I wanted to zero in on verses 22 to 25 this morning. Let me read it, and we'll be talking through it here. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he, that's Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. I drink it new, the kingdom of God. There are certain traditions that we get picked up in our families, perhaps, that we don't have any idea why we do it. We just have no idea that that, what's the meaning of this? Why do we do this? It gets passed down, and we're never really told the why. Like, we don't never, never learned why. Uh, maybe you have certain traditions in your own home, and you just do them. Your mom did it that way. I'm going to do it this way. My kids are going to do it this way. And there's a danger in the church of becoming people who just do it because we've always done it. I wonder how many of us have these types of mindsets when we're taking communion. Guys, is communion Sunday. You might not really know why we do it. You know it's, you know, a tradition that Christians have been doing for centuries, and so why not? But you've never really wrestled with why do we do this? What is it? Why has the church adopted this practice? It's been done by the churches from the very beginning, from the beginning of the church. The church, the early church understood that this meal that Jesus did in Mark 14 and other 
passages in the Gospels was to be done again and again and again by the church. Paul picked it up in the passage we read already in 1 Corinthians 11, saying that he received it from the Lord Jesus and that he gave it to the Corinthian church. We see in the book of Acts that the early church was breaking bread together, indicating they were sharing in the communion meal together. But many of us don't know why or what it means or what it symbolizes. And some of us have these kind of vague notions that it reminds us of Jesus. But I want to go a little bit deeper. Because even though the church has been doing this for centuries, it's not always understood. As a church, we understand that who's the Lord of the church? Not me. I want to claim that position. Not the elders. Who is it? It's the Lord Jesus, right? He leads this church. He's the head of the church. He leads the church through the word. He mediates his rule by giving us his word. And therefore, we don't have the right to sit here and make up what we do as a church and try to do whatever we think is best. What do we do? We go to the word. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is Lord. And we listen to what he says. And we want to know what the Lord has to say about the church. Good ecclesiology begins with understanding what the Lord has said about His church. And good ecclesiology, listen, begins with an understanding of the ordinances. You say, what are the ordinances? There are two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church, baptism and communion. If we want to understand the doctrine of the church, if we want to understand what we're doing here, why we're here, what this all means, what is meant to accomplish, we have to understand the ordinances that the King Jesus, that the Lord of the church gave to the church we have to understand what they mean and whenever we go through a section of scripture that tends to highlight or focus on one of these particular ordinances i think let's pause and study let's let's look at it because i don't think a lot of churches really dive deeply into the ordinances we don't have good ecclesiology just generally speaking in america when we, come, when we come to these types of things, we've got to dive in. We've got to study it. We are a church. Jesus is the head of the church. What does Jesus want for us to do? This is an important thing. The other thing that's why it's so important is that the Lord's table, in, in particular, has been misunderstood for centuries. There are all kinds of different viewpoints. Unfortunately, it's kind of splintered the church in all manner of directions. You've got the Roman Catholic view you got a Lutheran view, you got a Reformed view, you got a Baptist view, and you could go on. There are many views. Some of these views kind of overlap and they're compatible. Some of them are completely mutually exclusive. So we need to be clear on what we believe. And starting at our text here and working out what it is that Jesus taught and even what it is that Paul explained about this meal and what it means is so critical for us functioning together as a local church because we're going to do this at least once a month and when we do it we have to have our minds engaged for what it actually is that we're doing what it means so we're going to do this we're going to this is how the, the sermon is going to go we're going to first look at what happened okay we're just going to look in the text what is it that happened we're going to go through it and just kind of observe what's going on in the text then we're going to look at this we're going to go what jesus didn't mean okay there's a lot of things that people think he meant we're going to go what jesus didn't mean when he when he did this stuff and then we're going to conclude with what jesus did mean and we're going to have four sub points how do you like that outline all right what happened what he didn't mean what he did mean the 
the four subpoints. We're going to help have those subpoints are going to kind of be the bulk, the meat of the sermon to help us know what it is that we're doing when we participate in communion. Communion, by the way, is another way of saying the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. They are synonyms. All right, let's look at what happened. Look in the text with me. Let's just analyze the text. Verse 22. And as they were eating, we already established this is the Passover meal. This is what God told Israel to eat every year as a memorial meal to remember the covenant faithfulness of God. They would remember how the lamb died instead of them. The blood was spilled and the spilled blood meant salvation from judgment and deliver us from bondage. And every year the Jews would celebrate that meal. This is an ordinary, in one sense, Passover meal that they were taking. The disciples were not anticipating a dramatic change, but a dramatic change nonetheless takes place. They're eating, and there it says that He, Jesus, took bread. This would have been a flat, unleavened bread. You know, sometimes you put in the yeast in bread, and it takes some time, and it rises Well, God instructed the Jews when they were being delivered from Egypt to eat unleavened bread. Uh, They were not to put yeast in the bread. They didn't want it to rise and take the time that it took to let the bread rise because they were meant to do it in haste, indicating the hurry that they would be in as they're leaving Egypt. So this flat, cracker-like bread was there. There were three foods in the meal. You had the unleavened bread. You had the bitter herbs. And then you had that Passover lamb. And you would eat them all. And the tradition was that you would have four cups of wine that you would take at various points in the meal. If you want, you can actually get a Orthodox Jew to lead you through the Passover meal. They still do this as part of their tradition. It says that after he took bread, it says after blessing it, you see there in the text, after blessing it, after blessing the bread, that word blessing is eulageo, which is the word that we get the word eulogy from. It has the idea of a good word. It's speaking a good word. He's speaking truth and goodness over the bread that God is giving him. There was a traditional blessing that the Jews would recite. And we have that recorded in history. They would say at this point in the meal, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. So Jesus probably was saying that. He was taking the bread. He would hand it out. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. Everything up to this point was very ordinary. Nothing would have surprised the Jews. Nothing would have caught them off guard. This was an ordinary Passover meal at this point. And then he shocks them all. It says that he gave it to them and said, ordinarily... When you were passing out the bread, you did so in complete silence. As if this were a time to reflect. Jesus, as He's passing out the bread, begins to speak. And what He's doing is He's speaking new meaning into these ancient symbols. And I mentioned last week that who was the one who gave the Passover meal? It was Yahweh, the God of Israel. Who has the authority? over the Passover meal. It was Yahweh who gave it to them. Who is Jesus? Who does He think He is to sit here and now give new meaning and new interpretations to these elements of the meal? The divine claim. 
He is putting himself on the stage that only Yahweh should be on. In other words, he is claiming to be Yahweh, God himself. God is there in the flesh. He is giving a new meaning in what he says about the bread, that the bread is to be his body. According to Jesus, the new meaning of the bread is that the bread is his body. When they are to eat the bread, they are to think of his body. That is his incarnation, his suffering, his death. They are to take, then he, verse 23, he, he then took a cup. So they all took this piece of bread. And then verse 23, it says he took a cup, one of the four cups that was ordinarily and traditionally, uh, they drunk, drank that at the communion, or sorry, at the Passover meal. It says when he had given thanks, he gave it to them all. Given thanks, that word in Greek is the Eucharisto. It's where we get the word Eucharist. Uh, his idea of thankfulness. He gave thanks. He, Jesus himself praised his heavenly Father for what was happening here at this moment. And then he says, this is my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. It's poured out for many. We're going to talk about this more later. Covenants are all throughout Scripture. Covenants are often associated with blood. Jesus is now saying this this wine that you're about to drink is my blood of the covenant. And many other of the Gospels include and fill out the details. He would say this is my blood of the new covenant. There's a new covenant between God and His people. And my blood is being poured out and representative of this new covenant covenant verse 25 then he goes on and he says truly i say to you this is a matter of emphasis he would have already had their attention locked in at this point but now he's emphasizing i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink anew in the kingdom of god which is fascinating right because he's been talking about his death right he's been talking about he's going to go and die and he's talking about his body being broken like bread and he's talking about his blood being spilled out like wine and then he's saying that's not going to be the end (laughs) because i will eat the fruit of the vine again not for a long time i won't eat it until i drink it in the kingdom of god you know what that means that means resurrection that means victory that means he will establish his kingdom and so even as he is preparing the disciples for his own Death, he is indicating that he will conquer death, that he will establish his kingdom, that he will have victory. So that's what happened. And that sets us up to understand what Jesus did not mean. This is our second part, right? You following the other? Let's see what Jesus did not mean. The most popular error, you probably already know what I'm going to say. The most popular error regarding the Lord's table has crept in and been popularized by the Roman Catholic Church. It is the doctrine of transubstantiation. It's the most popular because the Roman Catholic Church is a large church and the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that when Jesus held up the bread and when He held up the cup and when He said, this is my body... And he said, this is my blood. They take that to be very literal and believe that Jesus' actual body is present in the bread and Jesus' actual blood is present 
in the wine. This is sometimes called the real presence view. That the real presence, the actual, literal body and blood of Christ are actually present in the elements when you take them. The belief is indicative of other errors in the Roman Catholic doctrine that Jesus' death on the cross was not final and that every time they take communion, it's a re-sacrifice of Christ. He is being killed all over again as the blood and the body are being given. He is re-sacrificing Himself again and again and again, providing new atonement for everyone who's participating. This is not what Jesus meant. When He said, take this as My body, Take this is my blood. Talking about the bread and the wine. Listen, the disciples would not have for one split second believed he was being literal. They would not have. The disciples had been trained from childhood that they were never to eat blood. It was part of the law. It even was a law that was before the Mosaic law was given. God said it, you shall never eat the flesh, or the, the, the blood from the flesh. You should not do that. It was never to be done. They would have at least asked a question. If they were thinking that this was Jesus' actual body and blood, they might have asked him a question and say, wait, aren't we supposed to not do that? Like, like I'll do it, but there's no question. They would, they're not thinking this. You remember in, in Acts when Peter was being told that he was allowed to eat these Foods that had under the old covenant, they were unclean, but now in the new covenant, they're clean and he's allowed to eat them. He had the hardest time getting that. He was so trained as a good Jewish man that he was supposed to avoid certain foods. Here, he is, Peter has no qualms. Why? Because he understands that it's not literal. Jesus is speaking metaphorically, just as he does so often. You've read the Gospels. You've seen the metaphors that Jesus uses. When he says, I am the door... You think the disciples went and looked for a knob, like on his belly button or something? Like, what? What did? I'm the vine. Well, I don't see any leaves. Like, he's he's using metaphors. I'm the light. Where's your switch? Like, you get it. Like, there's they never for a split second were thinking that he was being woodenly literal. Uh, If I had a picture of my kids and I pull them out from my wallet and I say, Hey, these are my kids. Here they are. And then I take that picture and I put it back in my pocket. Are you guys going to go, I wonder how the Durso kids survive in their dad's pocket. Wow, look at them. I didn't know they were so little. I could have sworn I'd seen them running around. Because you, you know that the picture is what? A symbol of a reality. That is not the reality itself. It symbolizes the reality. When Jesus says, this is my body, he is not saying, this is my actual body. He is saying, this element symbolizes the reality of my body. And this cup is not the actual blood of Jesus. It symbolizes the reality of his shed blood. It is symbolic. Jesus does not actually have the body and blood in there. We know that. The Bible is filled with symbols. It's important for our uh, interpretation of the Bible to recognize when metaphors are there, when symbols are there, and to not be literal where Jesus intends to be speaking figuratively. 
So that's what he didn't mean. Let's see, well, what did Jesus mean? What did he mean and what does it mean for us? That's now what we're going to look at. We're going to look at four different realities for this meal. And as we do this, I want you to to, to listen in preparation, okay? We're, we're, we're going to take the, the, the communion elements this morning. And as we go through these realities, as we consider what this meal is and what it's intended for, I want you to do this in preparation. We're doing it now. This is a sacred meal that is given to us by Jesus Himself. <laughs> Jesus hosts a meal. The title of the sermon is Jesus has a meal for the church. When we are gathering this morning, we are doing something profound and beautiful. You have to understand it. So as we go through these things, consider them. Here's the first. What is this meal? What does this mean? First, the meal reminds us that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. The meal reminds us that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. It's a biblical principle. If you read the Bible, start from the beginning, you'll find the principle all throughout, like a thread throughout the whole fabric of Scripture. And it is this, that sin requires death. You know how that comes through, all through the entire Bible from the very earliest chapters. Sin requires death. What does God say to Adam and Eve? He says, you can't eat from this tree. This is a forbidden tree. You can eat everything else, but don't eat from this one. Why? For the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? You die. You're going to die if you eat this. Why? Because sin equals death. All sin must be paid for by death. And what happens when they do eat of it? They begin to die. And then God acts in grace. He takes Animals slaughters them and covers Adam and Eve with animal skins. We often read right past that. We All we think about is the fact that God's covering them with animal skins. We forget how did they get those animal skins. Well, those animals had to die, didn't they? Those animals had to shed their blood so that the shame of Adam and Eve could be covered. And then you get going through the rest of the Bible. It's all throughout Scripture. The books of the law teach this, that sin requires death. God is always requiring animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament to show the point, the spiritual reality, the principle that cannot be broken, that sin requires death. At the Day of Atonement, the priest would confess the sins of Israel, symbolically placing them on the goat. Remember this? And then what would happen to that goat? That goat would die. They would slaughter the goat. It was symbolic. The sins that Israel had committed required death and yet god is graciously and mercifully providing a way where they're not going to be the ones that suffer death for their sin that god will slaughter the goat they can slaughter the lamb and they can then symbolically have their sins atoned for this is what happened in passover the lamb is slaughtered so the israelites can go free when the angel of death comes God is holy. He never just bats an eye at sin. He never just sweeps it under the cosmic rug of the universe. All sin requires payment. All sin results in death. Somebody must die when there is sin. Someone will die. God will not allow His justice to be compromised. 
And now by the time that Jesus is eating this meal with his disciples, he has these disciples have been celebrating this meal all their lives and they've been slaughtering a lamb to symbolize their freedom from the judgment that came over Egypt. And these guys had been doing it their lives, but for 1,500 years prior to them, they had been slaughtering lambs every year. And this time, Jesus comes to sit down with His disciples, and He's bringing the meal to its intended conclusion. All the lambs that died, all the goats that died, all the animals that shed their blood, symbolically making atonement for the people of God. Why? Because all sin requires death. Now Jesus is saying, I am going to die. I am going to be the final lamb. I am going to be the scapegoat. I am going to be the one that takes upon himself all the sins to make atonement. You see, there's always been a requirement of death for sin. God does not always require the sinner to pay for their own sin. He always requires death sin. What Jesus is saying He's saying that this is my body, that this is my blood, pointing to his death. He is indicating that he himself will be the final lamb. There will need be no more lambs after this. There will not be any more sacrifices of atonement after this. Because He is what all those lambs were pointing to. He's the point. And He will be the substitute who will take upon Himself all the sins of His people. And He will die in their place for their sins. This meal reminds us that your sins, church, have been paid for in full. You deserve to die But your substitute Jesus stepped in for you. Took your place. Took your sin. Took your shame. Took your guilt. Put it on Himself. Went to that cross and was slaughtered like a lamb. So that you don't have to die forever. To pay for your own sins. All the Passover lambs of all the ages were all pointing to Jesus Christ. The ultimate sacrifice sin. So when you participate in these elements as one who has trusted in Christ, you come remembering all my sins are gone. I don't have any more guilt before God. I am cleansed white as snow. I am completely forgiven. All the sins I did commit. It's not that God just has looked the other way. No, no, no. He slaughtered His Son. He paid for your sins, but in a way that you didn't have to die. His own Son died in your place. Substitutionary atonement is glorious, isn't it? Beautiful that He would take our sins upon Himself and die for us. Hebrews 10, chapter 12. But when Christ had offered for all time, listen to for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. That means it's done. After his death, after his resurrection, he went up, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sat down. There's no more sacrifices that needed to be made. Verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 10, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. 
In Christ, you are perfected. In Christ, you are justified. In Christ, you are completely forgiven. In Christ, you are innocent. In, in Christ, your guilt is gone. In Christ, you have all the manifold blessings of heaven poured out on you because you are in Christ and Christ is your substitute. But when you participate, you go with joy. You bear no more guilt before your Father. All your sins have been nailed to that cross, Christian. Isn't that a beautiful thing? All of them. You don't have to pay for a single ounce of your sins. Because they've all been paid for by Jesus. That's what he means when he's talking about his own body and blood being the, the bread and, and the wine. That when we participate in these ordinances, we are remembering that reality that Jesus is, in fact, the final sacrifice. I wonder if you're trying to atone for your own sins. We get into this rut sometimes, if you're honest. You may have been trying to atone for your sins this week. To think that you need to clean yourself up, to scrub yourself clean. That you messed up last week and now you've got to do some extra good works this week to get God back on your good side. That's not the gospel. Atonement is already done. It's complete. You just need to look back at the cross. And remember that you have already had all your sins forgiven, guilt removed, you are cleansed. And believe it. Believe that. Don't atone for your own sins. You could never do that. Here's the second thing this meal is doing. Participation in this meal this is profound. I want us to really rest on this one for a little bit. Participation with this meal is fellowship with Jesus Himself. You get this. This is powerful. I hope this hits home with you. See, we, there's a lot of agreement about that we're supposed to do communion. But there's been disagreements on what's actually happening when we do it. Some have said, well, it's just a memorial. Like, it's just meant to help us remember. And some have been, well, no, it's more than a memorial. It's, a, it's Jesus is actually here, present among us, so, some have taken that real presence view, but we reject that because we already know where the body of Christ is. It's resurrected at the right hand of the Father. So, But is He here spiritually? Is there a sense in which Jesus is present spiritually in the church? And some have debated a little more on that. To me, the debate on whether it's memorial or whether it's spiritual presence is a little bit silly. I think the answer is obvious. The answer is yes. Is it a memorial meal? Yes, do this in remembrance of me. You can't deny that. But is Jesus actually present here in a unique, special way when we're participating in the ordinances? I believe yes. And I'll show you why I believe this. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Corinthian church messed a lot of things up. And, and, and Paul needed to correct them pretty frequently. And one of the areas he needed to correct them was in their understanding and practice of communion. And in chapter 10, verse 14, he's urging them to flee idolatry. There had been idolatry in the church wreaking havoc, and he tells them you need to flee from idolatry. And one of the motivations that they need to use and to understand to flee idolatry is then found in verse 16. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing, that's the communion cup. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, if you're a the type that marks your Bible, I would encourage you to mark that word participation. Participation. The word is a well-known Greek word. It's koinonia. And in other places, it's translated fellowship. It's referred in other places in, in Greek uh, documents in the first century to refer to the kind of relationship married couples have. They enjoy a koinonia. It's a shared life. It's a deep unity. It's a deep kind of communion. The idea of sharing is filled within this word. Sharing life, sharing joy, sharing burdens, sharing food even, sharing money even, sharing joys. That's the idea of this word. And it's a beautiful word. And what Paul is saying that when we are participating in the cup and when we are participating with the, the bread, we are participating in, with Christ Himself, fellowshipping with His body and His blood in the gospel. This is an incredible reality that this is a, a, a way that Jesus invites us, follow this, to fellowship with Him. He's physically not here walking among us. Physically not here walking among us. He's physically not there in the elements, as if the elements actually turn into the body and blood of Christ. But spiritually, he hosts the meal and he fellowships with us as we receive these elements. This, by the way, (laughs) this is why taking communion in an unworthy manner is so serious. Because you are fellowshipping the Holy God when you're doing this. In fact, look down at verse 21 in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. You cannot keep, or sorry, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. There, there are two cups in the world the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. The cup of demons is living for the lusts of the world and prideful pursuits of life, following the prince of the power of the air. You can't take that cup while also then coming to these cups. Look at what he goes on to say. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There's two options, guys. There's two options here. You're going to live for the world and you realize that behind the world is the prince of the power of the air. And if you're following the ways of the world, you're pursuing your lusts of the flesh, what you actually realize is that you are in pursuit of demons. And you will not get out unscathed if you try to participate in fellowship with a holy God while you're smuggling in demonic things into His table. So shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? See, if you're going to enjoy fellowship with the Holy God, if you're going to enjoy fellowship with the Holy Savior, put away unholiness. Don't attempt to walk up to this holy and sacred meal given by a holy Jesus as in, and bringing with you all your worldliness and all your sin and taking with you all your idols. Don't come. It provokes the Lord to jealousy. Look at chapter 11 now. Skip ahead to chapter 11 and look at verse 27. He gets even more explicit about this. He is warning the Corinthians, you don't want to mess with the holiness of God. And treat the table in a profane manner. Verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup 
of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Listen to this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Come up flippantly to hold tight to your sins, to have idols of the heart that you're not willing to give up, you're not willing to repent of. You're dragging them to the holy place. You're dragging them before a holy God. And if you're going to try to do that, if you're yoked with unbelief, if you're yoked with idols and you try to approach a holy God, God will not be okay with that. Look at what it says there in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. As we just pass over this and go, oh, that was then. That couldn't possibly happen now. But it could. And I believe it does. The table of the Lord is profaned. God judges. When When we come to His table, we haven't examined ourselves, and we're bringing in our sin with us, and we're doing it in a flippant manner, and we're not recognizing we're approaching a holy God. Sometimes he gives temporary consequences. You get sick, you're weak, perhaps even spiritually weak, certainly spiritually weak. Sometimes he just calls it, all right, you're done. Some of you have died, he says. You don't want to smuggle your secret sins to the table. Jesus sees them. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what you're holding on to. He knows if there's sins that you don't really want to give up. He knows if you're polishing your idols while showing up to church, acting as if all is well. He invites you to repent. In fact, that's the way that we come to the table. We come humbly. We come confessing all known sin. We come repentantly. And we come gratefully because we remember that He has paid for our sins. He gave us the meal. He instituted it. But He also hosts it. He is holy. We dare not profane His meal by dragging in our idols. And so we remember the amazing and profound reality that Jesus meets us here in a special way when we take communion. Consider that reality. You get out of your chair and you're going to walk up these aisles and you're going to take some of this stuff. Jesus among us. He is among us searching with His blazing eyes of holiness. And He's there to actually nourish us, feed us, to encourage us, draw us to repentance. If you come holding your idols in your sin unrepentantly, He is present to judge. Look at a third aspect of this meal. Participation in this cup, or sorry, this, this meal is a sign of the new covenant. A sign of the new covenant. Look at verse 24 back in chapter 14 of Mark. Turn back there. I want to show this to you. Chapter 14, verse 24, where Jesus is saying, He says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. 
blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. God is always related to His people through covenants. A covenant is a, uh, a, a relationship of obligation between two parties. There's God who makes covenants and He has obligations that He will keep to His people and the people make obligations to Him. Often when the covenant was made, an animal would be killed. Um, this is what happened in the Old Covenant in Exodus 24. God gave them the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, and as a sign of that covenant, to kind of ratify that covenant, they slaughtered an animal, they took the blood, put it in a basin, and they, they actually sprinkled the blood on the people. How would you like that? What, if that? what if that was the meal for the church? I mean, that would be kind of gross. You're just throwing this blood all over the people who are there. But they would do that, and the blood often symbolizes that, you know, this is what happens to the person who breaks the covenant. Like, there's, there's life on the line here. And... Um, this is what it was given in the Old Testament. And there also was, in these old covenants, there was always signs of the covenants. Think back to your knowledge of the, the, the signs of the covenants, the covenants themselves. That Noah had a covenant with God. Well, you remember what the sign for that one was? The rainbow. And Abraham had a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was circumcision. And Moses, is the Mosaic Law, there's a sign of that covenant. It was the Sabbath. There was always covenants, promises being made, and there were always signs to help the people remember the covenant promises. Well, what's the sign of the new covenant? The covenant that we, the church, are part of. There's actually two. Baptism, sign of entrance into the covenant community, and the Lord's table, a sign of the renewal, the remembrance of the covenant that God has made with us. That's like our rainbow. This is like our rainbow. You know, every time you see a rainbow, you remember the uh, covenant with Noah? Well, every time we do this, we're supposed to remember the new covenant in Christ Jesus. This covenant, what is it? What's this new covenant? It's the covenant that Jesus has paid for the sins of all the people who would ever trust him. That he has established a way for us to know God. That he has established a way for us to be forgiven by God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get into the new covenant by faith and repentance, by turning from all other hopes and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, every time we come to this table, we are to remember who we really are. One of you walked in this morning with all kinds of thoughts on the brain. Maybe you had a discouraging week. Maybe you failed at some point. You felt weak at this point, And you have certain ideas of who you are. You, you all do. This is normal for the human condition is that we slap labels on ourselves. I'm a weak guy. I'm a struggling Christian. I'm a strong Christian. I'm just confused. I'm an addict. I'm, uh, you fill in the blank. We all have them. Things that we slap on ourselves as identities. I am this. I am that. This is who I am. This is why I am the way I am. And here, when we come to this table, we are to be reminded of the fundamental identity we have as Christians. You realize that? When you come to the table, you are supposed to remember that God has actually given you a new identity as a member of His covenant. I wonder if you've forgotten who you are. And whenever you forget who you are, it's a source of so much discouragement. Well, every time we do this, it is a reminder of who we actually are. Do you realize that you are the forgiven children of God? That you are the beloved of the Lord. That you are the member of His household. That you are His sons and His daughters. That God is committed to you. That you are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. And when you participate in this meal, a new label gets slapped on you that is permanent. And you just need to keep remembering it. And it is the label of you are the beloved. 
His lovely bride. Members of the new covenant that He will never break His promise to you. When you come and take the meal, know who you are. Get all those other cloudy ideas that are fogging up your mind out of it. Let the winds of God's truth blow them away and have clarity. You are the beloved children of God. Members of this covenant. Fully forgiven. Fully loved. Secure forever. Here's the last thing this meal does. Look at verse 25. As truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This meal, and this is our last point, reminds us that Jesus will conquer death and bring His kingdom. The meal is a promise. He says that there will be a day He has the meal again. He has the drink again. But it will be in the distant future in the kingdom of God. And we are to remember that this meal is a foretaste of a greater meal. You often talk about when we do communion that you are to take it looking ahead. Looking ahead to the kingdom. Looking ahead to glory. Looking ahead to what has promised to you. When you participate in this meal, you are to remember that the way things are right now is not the way they will always be. There's that great moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's final book, The Return of the King, where Samwise Gamgee, good old faithful Sam, he's in the middle of Mordor. It's looking bleak all around him. It's a very hard situation. He's not sure he's going to make it. He's just about lost all hope. And then Tolkien describes this beautiful scene that pierces his heart and brings him back. He says, There, heaping among the cloud rock, above the dark tor, high above the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, shadow is only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of the shadow. You participate in this meal. As if the clouds break and you see a bright star from heaven shining forth. And though this world is broken, though this world is cursed, though you see death and murder and disease and war and decay and fear and division and tension and strife, it's all around you. It's even in your own heart. You feel it. You look to this table and you are pierced to your heart. Another world is coming. Hope remains. That we will, as we often sing, feast in the house of Zion. It is all leading us there. It reminds me of the song we often sing. We've just learned in the last several months. Is He worthy? The second stanza goes like this. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? is. This is God's way of reminding ourselves of that reality. The new creation's coming. This meal's a foretaste of heaven, church. What are we doing? 
We're remembering that our sins are entirely forgiven because He's the final Passover Lamb. We're fellowshipping with Jesus Himself. We examine ourselves. We come with humble repentance and gratitude, celebrating His grace. We're remembering who we are. Members of the new covenant of Christ, sealed with His blood. Then, remembering that there is future glory that awaits us that this dark world can't touch. And when we take these, we're remembering the future glory as we feast with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb.